I know where I am today. No one could convince me otherwise. I'm here in Guntersville State Park near Guntersville, Alabama. Somehow, by going along with our radar painting some of the big thunderstorms on this line, we had to come right through it on our way over here. We made it to Guntersville, Alabama, and I know that I am here. I'm here to picture the kingdom of God and actually being inside that kingdom, being a member of the governing body that will be ruling this world within perhaps less than a decade from now. Who can say? Maybe more, maybe less, I don't know. But how can I absolutely know and know that I know, as much as I know by looking out the window or looking at the sign out here or looking at the sign in my motel, that I'm in Guntersville, how can I absolutely, positively know that I am going to be in God's kingdom? I know that I'm here picturing it, depicting it, acting it out, living like I'm in the kingdom with you people here for the brief while that we're together. But how can I have absolute positive guarantees and assurance that I will be in God's kingdom? It ties in rather well with the statement in the opening remarks about worrying, wondering, sometimes kind of fussing and fretting about how things will work out. I've heard this scripture for many, many years in God's church, Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I'll tell you this, for over 28 years of my life, there was a lot of work, and that's not necessarily bad, that's good. But I think there was entirely too much fear and entirely too much trembling. It seemed that when I went to my knees to talk to God, even though there was that awe and that respect and the kind of godly fear that you have toward God, your Father, I could never be reduced in a moment of prayer with God or I could never be reduced in an hour or two's of Bible study and looking through the Word of God, reading it and studying it and taking notes. I could never be reduced in staring out the window at an idyllic scene of God's beautiful nature to a trembling shadow of a man, to a quavering, timorous, frightful, fearful, worrying, apprehensive, scared individual who wondered what was going to happen next, like a child who had been caught doing some terribly dishonest or evil thing and was told to go straight to bed and wait for your father to get home and he'll take care of you when he gets here and you know you're going to get it, maybe 200 whacks on your naked rear end with a ping-pong paddle, and all that afternoon lying there in bed you're just rigid with fright. I've never experienced that kind of fright or fear or trembling when I was talking to God, my father. But I remember many an occasion of being reduced to a nervous wreck of fear and trembling and wondering what's coming next by things I heard out of a pulpit or things I heard in a meeting. I wonder if people have misunderstood this scripture. And I wonder if people in the world and other churches who look at the doctrines of the Church of God, the churches of God, of the Sabbath, of avoiding eating pork and shellfish and seafood, of observing the annual holy days of God and omitting from our observance Christmas, Easter, New Year's, if the concept of working out your own salvation is not emphasized in a wrong way, to the point that many people accuse us, as many of them do, of believing in salvation by works. Now recently I was on a nationally televised uh, program on CBN 
Can I ask how many of you happen to see some of that? How many of you saw some of that Ankerberg? Oh, did you? Well, I never did. I caught just a brief moment of one part and turned it off. Couldn't stand it. But uh, I want to tell you briefly, I've written on the personal and the international news about how that came about, so I won't belabor that. I think you know that they invited me over there. But I said no because they were going to get into a debate with this William Martin. And I will not debate the Word of God or anything that I believe. So I said no, no, no debates. They kept coming back and they said, we will simply conduct it as an interview and John Ankerberg will interview you about the gospel. And I said, well, that's great. Now you're talking about something I know something about. We're going to talk about the gospel. I'll come over there. That's no problem. And you interview me and I'll just tell you all you want to know, I hope, about the gospel. So off I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee at their expense into the studio, brightly lit, big cameras. He was about halfway back in the audience. I had a hundred people closer than the people in the front row, and I was sitting on an elevated platform all alone, and they started firing the questions at me. I came to find out a little later on that they had loaded the audience with some doctors of divinity from local places who had some little prepositions and little Greek words all ready for me and some clever little arguments about the Trinity or about an ever-burning hell or about the immortality of the soul. And they never got around to talking about the gospel. Not once did he say, what is the gospel? What is the gospel of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? We didn't even talk about it. Well, that was my fault. I should have known. It reminds me of Mrs. Webb and the driving school. Now, now, that was my fault. You see, I didn't realize as I went over there that John Ankerberg doesn't know what the gospel is. There was no way he could question me about the gospel. There was no way we could even talk about the gospel, because when he says gospel, that means trinity and soul and heaven and hell, and it means, quote, religion is all it means, religion, the gospel. Now, that was my fault. You remember years ago, the uh, I've even forgotten the gentleman's name. He was quite a famous comedian and I think had a show of his own on television for years. But he was like a driving instructor and Mrs. Webb was the lady who wanted to learn how to drive. And as he was filling out the application, uh, he was finding out about her past driving experience. And he said, now, now, now Mrs. Webb, he said, have you had any... Uh, any previous driving experience? Well, yes, she had. Oh, oh you have. Well, uh, did you have you ever had an accident? Well, yes, she had. Oh, you have. Oh, my. Well, uh, how fast were you going? Seventy-five. Uh, my. Well, well, where did that take place? Uh, in, in your driveway. Mercy. Uh, and backing up. And uh, he was just aghast, you know. So, well, uh, with some trepidation, he said, "We'll go out for our first lesson." And uh, they're going along, and uh, he said, now, now, uh, at this next corner, let's, uh, let's make a gentle, that's it, a, a gentle turn at this, that's fine. Mrs. Webb, no, no, look out, Mrs. Webb, look out! You hear crash! You hear glass shattering and everything? And they're sitting there, and he said, now, now, Mrs. Webb, uh, that was my fault then, you see, because you were signaling right, and I, I just assumed you were turning to the right. I, I didn't know you were going to turn to the left because you were signaling to the right. Well, it was my fault. I should have known that Ankerberg couldn't talk about the gospel because he doesn't know what the gospel is. But you know, I'm amazed at the letters I got from that. We got quite a number of letters and quite a number of people saw through what the gentleman had done. And they saw through the fact that he had cut me off before I'm even able to make the point that he asked about and that he then edited in different scriptures and his arguments and other people's comments over what I said. And as I heard 
Benny Sharp and my sons and other people tell me as they watched it and told me about it, they said that oftentimes my lips might still be moving and then he's starting to talk. Well, actually, in the subject of the Trinity, for example, I asked the gentleman plainly out, you believe that there are three members to the Godhead. There is God the Father, and that is a clearly defined being that you think of that has substance and spiritual form and is clearly separate and definitive from Christ and the Holy Spirit. Is that right? Well, that's right. And then Jesus Christ, you're very clear on who he is. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who was born of the Virgin Mary and assumed back to heaven to the right hand of the Father, awaiting till his enemies be made his footstool. And you have a kind of an idea that he's somewhat lesser, but he is bright and glorious, and he's there beside the Father. And you have a clear-cut idea of who is Jesus Christ. Is that right? Well, that's right. Well, now, the Holy Spirit. You think of him as an actual person, maybe kind of ghostly, and not definitive, you don't have an idea that, well, he's slightly taller than God or slightly shorter than God, but slightly taller than Christ. It's not clearly thought out in your mind. It's kind of a wraith-like, ghostly, spiritual essence, but you think of him as a person. Is that right? Well, that's right. Well, now, what does it say here? And I turn over here to Matthew 1 and Luke 1, and we read how the angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. I didn't have my Bible there. I just quoted it. And it said, the angel said, that thing which is begotten in thee of the Holy Spirit, and that you shall name his name Jesus, and that Mary, quote, was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Who begot Jesus? Who did the begetting? Who was Jesus' father? Well, uh, uh, we'll take a break, and we'll come right back, and we're, we're going to take a commercial. And that was the end of that. They wouldn't answer that question. So it was kind of an interesting exercise, but you know, out of all of that, some good did come. And I came to understand a little more deeply and fully the degree of absolute confusion there is in this world. Now, if you want to know how to be confused about religion, the way many people have been confused who have come to the Church of God International for all the wrong reasons, we did have our rebels. I acknowledge it. Many people came out of the world by Church of God because they had their own doctrinal ideas or hang-ups or resentments or they had uh, resentments against the Church for perhaps the wrong reasons instead of the right ones. And in the early couple of years, a number, even in the ministry, hoped that I would abandon the holy days or that I would give up on tithing and giving or that I would quit observing the Sabbath and we would simply become like another Church of the world. And they found out that I'm just not made like that, that I wasn't going to give in on those issues, and so some of them left. I say I, and I don't mean to make that sound wrongly, but I was not going to budge on it no matter what anybody else did, and I was going to trust God to keep me on the air if that's what he wanted me to do, and to do the radio and television, and to be able to reach the general public with the gospel if that's what he had in mind for me. Now, if I want to be confused when I'm at home watching my television set, I have one of these automatic little clickers you sit across, you don't have to get up and change the channel every time, and I imagine most people do nowadays. And I can sit there and I can just go around the dial. And I sit at an angle where the knob doesn't even let me know which channel I'm looking at. I don't know whether it's 7, 9, 11, or what. And if I just keep going around and I listen to about 30 seconds of each program, and then 30 seconds of another one, then back to part of a football game, then watch one pitch on a baseball game, then back to some interview, and then to a soapbox opera, and then to the middle of a movie. Pretty soon my head's going around, I don't know what in the world I want to watch, I'm all frustrated, 
And instead of looking at the TV guide and picking out a program deliberately, I'm just flipping the dial around. You ever do that? Everybody's done that. Drive along in your automobile. You flip along on the dial, and you hear little bits of pieces of a speech and part of a sermon, and, and then some music and some noise that is supposed to be music, and somebody talking, maybe a Spanish station. Just keep doing that up and down the dial. Just listen to almost everything available. A little while, your mind is all jangled and exhausted and enervated, and you're all confused. If I had one of these tape decks at home, and I could listen to a little bit of a fugue from Bach, and maybe some light, beautiful strings, and then I could tune into some acid rock all of a sudden, and I could hear an Indian war dance, and then I could hear a beautiful little bit of Beethoven, and I could hear some pops, and then Doris Day, and then Tom Jones, and then a country western song, and then back to the Indian war dance. My head would be going around. I wouldn't know what in the world I was listening to. Now, we have people like that in the field of religion. They just love to get confused. So they read a little bit from this fellow and a little bit from that fellow. And they listen on Sunday morning to several of them or most of them. And they're all saying different things. And I get a flood of mail and they will send me little books and tracts and pamphlets and articles. Now, Brother Armstrong, what do you think of this? And here's a little choice quote from Mary Baker Eddy or Mrs. E.G. White or some would-be prophet or prophetess. I don't know how many copies of the Book of Mormon I've been sent. I have several copies, one of them in India paper leather bound of the Book of Mormon. People wanting me to explain this and they want to understand it. And they're listening to all of these voices and they're all confused. Now how can you become unconfused and how can you know something and know that you know it and be absolutely, totally convinced? You know, the scripture, Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, comes from a Greek word that is different from the one that we're familiar with, ergon. It doesn't mean ergon, which is hard labor or work. It means to finish or fashion or perform or to fully accomplish, and the Greek word is katergadzomahi. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, one of the very most important scriptures about this Christian life and all of the Bible I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Are you holy? The Bible talks about holy brethren, dearly beloved, saints in the Lord. Go preach a sermon about whether or not we in the church are indeed saints. We think of saints as having a halo and looking very sad, and we think of them in the old paintings of Europe and the Catholic Church. When Jesus told his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them that believe, how are you going to do that? How are you going to go out here and baptize somebody? Mr. Kimbrough mentioned some baptisms. Let me tell you how he didn't perform the baptisms. He hasn't been walking, contrary to what you might think up and down the streets, maybe Skid Row or outside the bars in Atlanta, and grabbing people and shoving them in his car and slamming a door and rushing to a river, manhandling them down the bank, grabbing them around the shoulders and plunging them in the water, and then yanking them out, clapping hands on them, standing there dripping, wondering what's going on, and then take them back and say, you have been baptized, welcome into the church of God, brother. You don't baptize people unwillingly. You don't force it upon them. 
If you're going to baptize someone, he's had to go through a process. And that process is called in the Bible repentance. Repent ye and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, oftentimes I will think of the analogy, even as I am showering, wouldn't it be lovely if with this bar of soap God could cleanse me internally in the same way that I can cleanse my physical body of perspiration and accumulated dirt and whatever if I've been out in the golf course and the sticky feeling you get after perspiring in 97 degrees after 18 holes of golf. Wouldn't it be marvelous if I could be made as clean and spick and span and presentable and I can smell good because I use Irish Spring uh, spiritually as I can be washed and scrubbed and cleansed with this bar of soap physically. Now how do you present your body as a living sacrifice and how does it become holy in God's sight? Only by repentance, only by saying you are deeply sorry over what you have done, what you have thought, and even over what you have been. But the only way you're going to be brought to that is by some transformation of thought, something that takes place in your mind. I was whipped as a kid a lot of times when I wasn't sorry. There were other times when I wasn't whipped at all, and I was really sorry. Just because I got a whipping, depending upon the circumstances, what I did, how it was done, the manner in which the punishment was administered, did not necessarily lead me to say in my heart, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, I was a bad little boy, I wish I hadn't done it, and I'm never going to do it again. It depends. And all of you had the same experience. You can remember being made deeply sorry, literally ashamed of yourself, and embarrassed, and wished like everything you hadn't done something. Then there were other times when you might have been punished in school, or by your parents, or by your peer group, when you really felt vindicated, you really felt you didn't do anything all that bad. You still had your point of view you wanted to espouse. You didn't give in and say, they're right and I'm wrong. You just took the punishment. If you repent, you have to repent of sin. And that's a long subject all by itself, and I preach many, many dozens of sermons and broadcasts on it. What is sin? And just recently, as recently as the Day of Atonement, I went through many of the different Hebrew words, of which there are over 24, I think, of different nuances or shadings of the meaning of sin certain omissions of human conduct, trespasses, certain things that we do to another human being we didn't really intend, and many ways in which we miss the mark in the Hebrew language, which can mean sin. When finally the Holy Spirit reaches the very third level of your consciousness, down where you really live, because there are about three levels, there's the conscious, and there is the subconscious, then there is the really deeply private secret thoughts you don't even share with anybody else. Like the thing you think, you know, of somebody, will you ugly so-and-so, as you smile and say, hi, how are you doing? Uh, that's the real you that said that first little thing in there. We're all like that. We expose ourselves in a kind of a three-tiered level. But God knows the third level. He knows the innermost depths of our hearts. And when with that innermost depth of your being, you see yourself as a sinner, as someone with a whip in his hand beating the very body of your dying Savior, 
as someone standing at the foot of the stake, leering and jeering and saying, crucify him, as someone who had a hand in it, as someone who is blood guilty, as someone for whom that great being died in a deeply personal sense, which I maintain few have ever really reached. They appropriate him. They say they have. They say he's a lovely savior. But a man-to-man -man or woman-to-man, one-on-one relationship, he died for me, doesn't reach that third level of consciousness in very many people. Now, when it does, if it does, and you really deeply repent, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you've been, and I know that we categorize sin, so I will say no matter if you have been a murderer. I remember talking with a young lady in Chino prison for women who had stabbed to death with a kitchen butcher knife her own children. She was not repentant. All she did was talk about how the prison conditions were lamentable and terrible and the food wasn't good and they mistreated her. We went down there and did a television program or two at this women's prison and a couple of them in a men's prison. And I met people in there that were absolutely unrepentant, unregenerate people who only had a chip on their shoulder against the system and couldn't wait to get back out. Drug smugglers, bunco artists, con men, robbers, burglars, murderers. There was one young lady in there. She couldn't have been anything more than an innocent high school kid barely out of high school, about 19. It was doing one year with all the rest of those hardened con people for possession of a little over an ounce of marijuana. My heart went out to her because she was trapped into that by her peer group and she's sitting there eating meals with murderers and bad check artists and professional criminals, females, etc. And it's really a horrible place to be. But our criminal justice system does not bring about repentance. It does not rehabilitate. It does not turn out into the streets and into the factories and onto the job totally rehabilitated good citizens who say, I am sick to my soul with what I did and I will never do it again. There is substantial proof of that. Did you repent? When was it that you repented? I can think of many plateaus or levels of repentance in my life outstanding peaks and outstanding valleys. I maintain that repentance is not something that happens only once, but is virtually a lifelong process. It is a state of mind rather than necessarily a state of being. You can temporarily reach down and you can take this body, this life, out of the hands of God and put it back in your own hands and start ruling and directing your own life again. And when you do, you've got to look around and say, wait a minute, maybe some chain of circumstances, some terrible personal tragedy, something in your family, something with your loved ones, something in the church, something of your physical health, something that God reaches your mind with through his word, maybe something you simply find in prayer, but some set of circumstances kind of jerk you up and yank you back and make you realize, now wait a minute, I, I've been going the wrong way again here. I've been slipping and backsliding, as they say in the worldly churches, and I've been letting down, and you will repent anew. That doesn't mean you didn't repent the first time. I knew of a man in the church who, because one young gentleman did something that bugged him, he said, well, uh, you can't get back into church till you're baptized again people begin to doubt their first baptism. Well, don't doubt that. Why did you do it? 
What did you mean in your heart and your mind when you did it? What were you saying to God at that time? Just because you've had some valleys as well as some peaks in your life doesn't mean that God has given up on you or that you should give up on God. It is easy for a minister who is clever to exploit his audience. It was fantastically easy for Adolf Hitler to do in Germany what he did. He was probably the most amazed of them all. He couldn't believe his own success at how desperately people want to be manipulated. They want to have their vicarious frustrations satisfied by some collective mob, mass euphoria of a very gifted speaker who can whip up the deepest resentments in them, which Hitler did, and can whip up the greatest, most exalted promises and possibilities for the future. How do you think the Schulers and the various uh, success preachers and speakers are so successful as they are today, except that they're telling audiences what those audiences want to hear. I look around in amazement at some of these people who couldn't speak their way out of a parking ticket, who are some of the absolute worst actors, worst speakers with no message, no personality, and in my opinion, no character and no honesty, and the camera pans out there and there are thousands of eager people sitting there nodding and agreeing with their every word. The Ernest Angeleys and the PTL Club with frustrated would-be ham actors and actresses up there singing away and dancing and saying, oh, praise the Lord, but they never get around to preaching solid doctrine. They don't tell you how to live, how to conduct your business, how to conduct your family, how to rear your children. What does the Bible say sin is? What do you repent of? What is repentance? Should you be immersed in water baptism or sprinkled or poured? Do you observe a day that God made holy? Uh, what is the kingdom of God, and who is its king, and who are its citizens, and where is it going to be, and what is prophecy all about, and how do you understand what's happening in the Middle East and Lebanon? Do you hear that on the PTL club? Or an endless show of people you understand are, quote, religious people. They say, praise the Lord. One man speculated, I think he was a politician, that that stands for pass the loot instead of praise the Lord, but that was his opinion, and he may be right about that. I am amazed at how easily people can exploit an audience. Let me ask this. Have you been transformed? It says in verse 2, be not conformed to this world. Now, I'm easily conformed to this world I see out here. This doesn't mean that beautiful lake. It doesn't mean the mountains and the trees and the birds and the little deer that we saw last night. A real precious, cute little sight of a little fawn behind her mother that still had its spots going across the road here last night. So cute and pretty and idyllic, almost like a foretaste of the millennium. That's not the orb or the globe he's talking about. He's talking about the false religious, socio-economic, and political systems of this world, which is in the hands of Satan the devil. But be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Has your mind been transformed? Has it been renewed? Are you still conformed to this world or are you completely changed? Are you a different kind of a person? In 1 Corinthians 6.19, very important scripture, and let me ask as we turn to that, who owns you this morning? Who owns you? Who bought you? 
The scene in the Garden of Eden is one of the perfect two human beings who didn't know what nakedness was, projected suddenly into consciousness and projected into the world. God put them into the world. It was the world he put them into. They were in the middle of the world. It certainly wasn't the devil's world then, but the devil was there. The garden was God's garden. It was the garden of perfection, the garden of abundance, the garden of pleasant fruit and beauty, of rippling brooks and everything. It was marvelous. Satan was present. Satan comes along and he begins to appeal to their intellect, to their mind, to their appetite, to their eyes, to their sensory perceptions. He proposes this and that, and they listen. They say, yeah. So finally, they obey the suggestion the subtle advice and counsel, or the direction, if you will, of Satan the devil. Now, his you are, whose counsel, advice, suggestions, or orders you obey. Why are you at the Feast of Tabernacles this year? And I'm not going to embarrass anybody by saying, raise your hand. So let me ask you this question. Are you here because Garner Ted Armstrong told you to be here? I sure hope not. I hope you would be here in this room if I had written a great major article a few weeks ago in the international news, throwing out a lot of scriptures, telling you I have found new truth, and telling you there isn't any requirement to obey the Feast of Tabernacles. I hope you're strong enough, I hope you're far enough along in the truth of God, firmly enough grounded in the truth, that no matter what I would say, you people would be here anyway. Somebody else would be preaching to you this morning, because you're able to think. And because you've set your hand to a course of action, and because you have absolutely proved it to yourself, and because no matter how persuasive I might be, how many clever arguments, you will remain absolutely staunch and fast. Who owns you? Who leads you around by the nose? Who possesses you? Who tells you what to do? Now, we can make jokes about husbands and wives, but I won't do that. Parents ought to tell children what to do, and they are our children until they are up and on their own and then able and, of course, required to make decisions on their own. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God or of God, and you are not your own now, who does the possessing? Who does the buying? Who did the purchasing? Who paid the price? I didn't. Time after time, I get telephone calls, and I feel absolutely helpless. Someone is desperately sick. Someone has some horrible traumatic heartache, a divorce or something. And I will tell them, I don't have the magic words. I don't have the formula. Would that I could say some words and suddenly everything would be all right with your situation. I can't do that. How many people write off letters? I know many of my letters, I can recognize them because every single day I have a folder and it says prayer requests. And I have to go through those to pray about them and think about people's problems. Sometimes they will actually tell me they wrote to Brother Oral or they wrote to somebody else. And other times I can sort of deduce it by the tone of the letter. It'll be a kind of a hasty, oh, by the way, pray for me, pray for my uncle, pray I'll get a good job, pray for my sister, pray for my arthritis, pray for this, pray for that. 
I think people do that. I think they write letters. It's kind of a just-in-case thing. I'm going to scatter my shots, cover all the bases, make sure I write to all the men that might have a little pull with God, and if one or two of them remember to pray for me, I'll probably get off a little lighter. So some of my mail, I think, is from people that just are touching all the bases. Others, desperate, totally sincere, want me to pray for them. What an awesome responsibility. I could say what flattery. I could say what an accolade. But what a fearsome and an awesome responsibility. If you were a deep, close, personal friend with Nancy Reagan, and there was coming a black tie affair at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., and some great foreign dignitaries were going to be there, and you called your friend Nancy. Oh, how are you, dear? And this and that. Well, I'm fine. And you were total close friends, personal friends, kind of friends that share confidences. And you said, I just got to get two tickets to that event. Can you arrange it? Sure. I'll talk to Ronnie. I'll wait and I'll talk to him in bed tonight. I'll get him in the right mood at the right moment, and I'll put a word in his ear. I'll have the tickets on their way to you. You guarantee I'll get you in. Would you be happy? Would you think mission accomplished? Or would you say, oh, I wonder if there's any way I can go to that affair. I wonder if I should go spend the money on a tuxedo knowing I might not be able to wear it. I wouldn't dare go ahead now and get my plane reservations. How do I know I'm going to go to Washington, D.C.? I probably won't make it. Nancy probably won't succeed. After all, what kind of pull has she got with the president, especially in bed? I mean, how can Nancy uh, turn Ronald Reagan's head, Annie, and get him to listen to the likes of me? Or wouldn't you say to yourself, on the other hand, hey, if anybody can get anything done with the president of the United States, it's Nancy Reagan. Wouldn't you feel confidence? Wouldn't you go ahead and buy the suit? and get the reservation and have a big smile on your face and say, I'm going to Washington, D.C. I'm going to be there. Now, you know, if Jesus Christ of Nazareth owns you, and it says here he does, it says he bought you. It says you are bought with a price. What a price it was. The very life of God, if you will. Jesus Christ, who was very God, born in the flesh, suffered, bled, and died. He purchased you. You're his possession. He's out shopping. You can look at that like you're a commodity. And he says, I want this one and that one and that one. I'll take those and these and three of them. And he bought you. And the price was his blood. Now, he possesses you. He owns you. He bought you. You are his purchased possession. I didn't buy you. I can't die for you. I can't heal you. I can't say magic words that solve your marital problems. I can't help you with your children. I'm just a minister, a speaker, a preacher. I've been doing it for 28 years. My reach is only that long. My voice is only so loud. My eyesight only so good. I don't have any power beyond that. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 7.23 you are bought with a price. Be not you the servants of men. What kind of men? Do you see there any exceptions? Does it say, be the servants only of holy men? But don't ever be the servant of an unholy man. 
Does it say there, be not the servants of military men? Be not the servants of political men? Don't be the servants of Muslims or of Jews. It says, don't be the servants of men, doesn't it? Are you my servant? No, I'm yours. I'm supposed to be your servant. Now, somehow, over the course of many years, tens of thousands of people gradually, insidiously, subtly, unintentionally, unknowingly become the servants of men or of a man. They don't recognize the distinct difference, the incredible difference, the awesome difference between a human figure in a pulpit, a human voice spoken with human vocal cords, and the voice and the figure and the presence of God. They don't recognize the difference. It's all confused in their minds. It's to the point, not in one, but in many great churches, in Iran, in the Roman Catholic world, in other areas, other churches, where when a man speaks, it is as if the people are saying it is like the voice of God, and I must obey. Someone will say, well, why are you doing this? Because he says so, and that's good enough for me. Doesn't it say here that you are not to become the servants of men? Is the Pope a man? Is the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini a man? Are religious leaders men? Am I a man? Are you to ever become my servant? Who owns you? I don't. I didn't buy you. Not one ounce of my sweat. Not one broadcast. Not 20. Not 720 have purchased your life. Nothing I have written, nothing I have said or done, a million miles I have traveled, have not compensated for the value of your human life, your presence, your being in the presence of God in this room, in this building today at the Feast of Tabernacles. I did not buy you. I don't own you. Let's notice in John the 8th chapter how Jesus Christ made a very important point with regard to this to the Pharisees. They were prideful. They really believed they were free people. In the 8th chapter of the book of John, verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That stung them because they thought they were the people who were the proprietors of the truth. They were the great religious leaders. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed with their national and racial pride and we're never in bondage to any man. How can we be made free? Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, whosoever commits sin, calling them sinners, is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever. Interesting. The servant abides not in the house forever. He is saying, you are only here temporarily. Your office will last only for the duration of your lives. You are a servant. You're the servant of sin. And sin is your master. Now he gets a little more specific. He says, verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, you do that which you have seen with your father. And they answer in a very, very nasty and sardonic way, Abraham is our father. Verse 39, and Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham, you do the deeds of your father. Got a little tough about now. 
And they said, we're not an illegitimate. We're not born of fornication. We weren't born of a sinful act. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said, if God were your Father, you would love me, because I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself. And in verse 44, you are of your Father, the devil. He said, you're of your Father? The Bible says we are of our Father. We are owned by him. He owns us. We are his purchased possession. Whose possession were these Pharisees? To whom did they belong? According to the words of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Who was their owner? Who possessed them? Who controlled them? Who told them what to do? Yet what was their status in the religion of that time? They were the ostensible leaders that sat in Moses' seat, the heads of the only true religion, people with the power of life and death over the masses. They had the law, they had the prophets and the psalms, they were the people over the temple and the synagogues. They were sitting as a human interloper, absolutely and totally corrupt, in a holy place, in a holy office, with a holy responsibility. And yet, they were not owned of God. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own because he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus explained that they were enslaved of the devil. They belonged to him. They didn't realize it, but they literally did belong to Satan the devil. If you belong to Jesus Christ, let's turn to John 15 and verse 16. Notice what he said of his own disciples. You are his possession. He absolutely owns you. There's no doubt at all in his mind as to whose possession you are. This is John 15 and verse 16. And as you know, these are the parting final words in that part of Christ. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And that work only, in a sense, began with Pentecost, where we are concerned, where this living generation of human beings who were left on this earth is concerned. Christ's work is a finished work, but every single day he is still working in heaven where we are concerned. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are of you. And I have given unto them the words which you gave me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. I pray for them. If Nancy could manage to get you some tickets to go to a black tie ball in Washington, D.C., and she could, she could get the job done. She's got the influence. Think of these people who write to me and say, Brother Ted, pray for me. What does it mean if Jesus Christ of Nazareth says, you can substitute your name, I'm going to pray to my Father for you. Now, I don't know how much you believe in your prayers, but how much do you believe in his prayers? What kind of influence does he have? If he prays to his Father for you, do you think God is listening? Do you think that prayer gets through? 
Do you think it will be answered? I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours, and all of mine are yours, and yours are mine. We, together, he is saying, in the God family, possess them, and I am glorified in them. You know, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is being glorified here in Guntersville today, in this building, here at the feast. He loves what he sees. The angels in heaven love what they see taking place, what they see going on. The word of God open before us. A minister focusing our minds in on these words, making them come to life, making them sink down into our hearts, us receiving these words, the beautiful song we heard, inspiring, exalting, and uplifting, the message as well as the voice and the music to inspire us. The inspiration of congregational singing, standing as one and hearing the sound everybody else is making almost overwhelm our own voice. Christ is being glorified in this. He loves it. It makes him look great. It makes him look better. It makes him all the more beautiful. He said he is glorified in that. He prayed. He said, I am now no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, he prayed, keep through your own name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Christ prays that God will keep you, that he won't eject you, won't throw you away, won't discard you, but he will hang on to you. He'll never let go. Back in chapter 15 and verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments. No matter the world does not believe that Christ kept his Father's commandments or that we should keep God's law and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. I preached a sermon a couple of years ago on the joy of salvation. Many people have written me since. I guess that tape still makes the rounds every now and then of people who have gone off to church, even gone to the Feast of Tabernacles year after year after year. And it was bereft of joy. There was no great happiness. Oh, they have their light moments. There's happiness being with your friends. There's that enjoyment. But the aura, the general feeling was one of, of depression, was one of fear, of threat, of doubt, of wondering, am I going to make it? Can I ever be good enough? Will I ever be at the feet of Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of God? Or am I going to be put out? They said they had to guard what they said. They couldn't just be free and open like a child, bubbling out whatever is on his mind. They had to be careful to whom they spoke and what they talked about. Had to guard their conversation and be careful who heard them. Jesus talks about giving us this great joy. Greater love, he said, than this, in verse 13, has no man, that a man lay down his life for his friends, which is what Christ did for us. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. It says God called Abraham friend, and it says Jesus Christ calls us a friend. Notice 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians 3, 23. The biggest little word in the English language is, of course, the word if. 
You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We just got through reading that in Christ's own words. All mine are thine, and all thine are mine, because you gave them to me, and I bought them. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now notice it's not the other way around. He's mine, he's mine, goes the old song. People in the world appropriate Christ. They say, I have made him mine. They have their little household God. Christ says it's the other way around. You are Christ's. You belong to him. He has purchased you, and Christ is God's. He belongs to God the Father. They are absolutely one. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, we know this is the resurrection chapter. Very important part of the Bible. I'll read up to that because verse 22 really is a part of the thought. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Those who belong to him, those whom he possesses, those whom he bought and purchased, will be with him in the resurrection at the second coming of Christ. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all power, all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He's even going to abolish and to annihilate death, so death will never more reign on this earth again. Afterward, they that are Christ's, Galatians 3.29, verse 29. I think we've settled that word in our mind. We certainly should have the day we were baptized. We should have dozens of times since that time to this. Done away with a little word if, because Paul here is talking to people of whom he was not sure. Remember in the opening chapter, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that has called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, but there is not another, but there be some that trouble you. He's writing to the Galatians. With them, it was an issue in doubt. With them, it was still a question. With them, he didn't know. And so he wrote, If you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Have you erased the word if? Are you Christ's? Do you belong to him? Has he bought you? Has he purchased you with his very blood to the point that you belong to him? Over in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, one of the very most moving chapters in all of the Bible, I want to read up to this a little bit. He gave some, verse 11, apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers is really a synonymous word. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, look up the word edifying, it means building up, it means resupporting. it means encouraging, it means something that is ebullient and uplifting and something that is joyous and something that is progressive, where you're making progress, it is filled with hope and promise for the future. When you're building a new home, you're excited, you're watching it go up, there's so much going on, you're hoping it's going to come out all right. When a mother is carrying a baby, she watches her diet, she gets her exercise, she knows that a human being is being constructed and knit together in her womb. And she is so careful to make sure that the baby is going to be whole and healthy and well. 
The work of the ministry is for the edifying of the body of Jesus Christ. Until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a mature, spiritually perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And look at the way you marvel at the examples of Christ. I know that some of us would fly off the handle at the little slight. Somebody can get in front of us in a line. Someone can cut us out in a line of traffic. Someone can say a wrong thing to us. Someone can curse us or make some obscene gesture to us or belittle us or gossip about us or in some way hurt us. And what happens? A lot of times we get angry, we get vindictive, we want to get back at them. You look at the example of Christ, the bottom line of Christianity, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do while he's dying. He's on the stake. As I've said recently, I don't know Stephen's last name or second name. I don't know exactly how old Stephen was. I don't know who his mother and father were. I don't know anything of his family. I don't know where he lived. I don't know what kind of education he had. I just read a name of the diaconate in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, a man named Stephen. Then I read how God was doing great things, and all of a sudden in the seventh chapter of Acts, he's kind of on trial before a group of Pharisees, and he says these great words, and they grab stones, and they murder him right on the spot. And at the last moment of his life, just like Jesus Christ as he died, Stephen says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. God didn't answer that prayer. He heard it, but he laid the sin to their charge. But it was sure good of Stephen to pray it, because it made Stephen go down in history as being one of the very most remarkable examples of a martyr and a great man of God who died with a prayer to forgive his own killers on his lips. I doubt, pardon me, Mr. Kimbrough, for a moment, I had this one little doubt that Garner Ted Armstrong at this precise moment, standing here in this pulpit at this hour, is exactly to the place Stephen was when he died. I wonder if one of you could begin killing me and I would pray to God to forgive you. I don't know that yet. I don't even want to have to find out. I hope God doesn't make me find out. But I've got to confess to God. What a marvelous example was Stephen. I can look up in the phone book in other nations, like in Spain, Esteban. Over in Yugoslavia, Stefano. Even females, Stephanie, Stephen. That name is all over the so-called Christian world, even in languages and nations where they don't speak English. Who doesn't know, among the millions who have heard about the Bible, the name of Stephen? They name their boys and their girls after that man. But they know nothing about him except that he died with a prayer on his lips, forgive my murderers. That is the bottom line of all of Christianity. That's what Jesus says. That's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more like we are, no more like too many people in the church are, no more like many of the ministry are, like little kids tossed to and fro. Let's go trotting off after some man preaching weird doctrines, waiting on the top of a mountain right now, understand, with a group of people only a few years ago were in the CGI and before that the WCG, and now they're waiting for a new rapture. Let's go follow him. 
He's got a string of sermons called Healing the House. Let's go heal the house. What's wrong with the house? They use ten penny instead of something else. What's wrong with the thing? Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Oh, are some of them windy. The breezes blow and the wind howls and whines and people listen. They get confused. They're just like the person punching the TV set, listening to the radio, listening to all kinds of different music and wonder why they're all confused. By the slight, the craftiness, the kind of a clever deception of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things which is the head, grow up unto him in all things which is the head. Remember who is the head. Never forget it. There is only one. He is not human. He is divine, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. And we've seen that analogy drawn many times, like the human physical body, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. You know, this analogy of the human body could be drawn, and it is drawn a little further in the fifth chapter, to the human family. You know, if you have children, those children are the product of your own body. Let's say that you are a person with your own business, you're independent, and you have absolute guaranteed income because you own a certain amount of real estate, but you have a kind of a broad portfolio of heavy metals, certain investments, maybe some stocks and bonds, some utilities, especially some tax-free investments. And you're living on the investments, but they include land, which is arable, fertile land, and a farm where you can grow your own food and cattle. You know, I'm trying to cover all the bases so you're not thinking of someone whose business would be wiped out by a stock market crash. But here are children running about in the yard of a family who have all those possessions. You really get nervous about those kids, don't you? You worry about their schooling. You worry about whether they're going to have enough to eat what kind of clothing they will have, whether the family will be able to keep them in shoes during the winter. No, of course you don't. You don't have any worry at all about kids in a family like that. A family in an upper income level that would listen to one of these TV ads and decide, I'm going to try to help these little homeless waifs from Cambodia or Vietnam, and I'm going to adopt one of those children. You worry about that kid? A family that is wealthy reaches out and says, I'm going to bring you clear over here from Vietnam, and you can live in my home. And this is your farm now. And when I die, you will inherit my property. You worry about that kid a lot, would you? I wouldn't. I don't worry about these little children I see out here in people's laps. I don't worry about the little kids I see people towing in here to the sermon. I don't worry about them when I see their mom feeding them out here, having a mother's room, some of them nursing, some of them with a bottle and a formula. You worried, nervous about those kids out there? Their mother's taking care of them. What are you, what are you worried about? Now, we are God's kids. We're his children. What kind of children do you want, you mothers, to come out of the womb? Perfect, whole, healthy, caribic, beautiful, ten toes, ten fingers, everything in place, good vision, all their senses. You want them to be healthy and complete and to look like you a little bit, and like dad a little bit, maybe like maternal and paternal grandparents and to have some of the parental characteristics. How much do you love your own children? How much do you care for them? I don't worry. I never get a bit nervous about these little children around here, unless I see some parent deliberately abusing one. You know, you don't see that in God's church. At least I hope not. 
So what is there to be so frightened about, so nervous, so upset, so worried about getting into God's kingdom? I said earlier I could manipulate. Yes, I could. I know how. I don't think I ever did it deliberately. But, you know, I've had a lot of experience speaking, and I'm a fairly experienced speaker after 28 years of radio and television. And I could begin with a sermon about the torture camps. I could talk about the meat hooks. I could talk about all the horrible things in Germany, and I could lead it all up to the little children freezing to death in the snow. And then I could say the Germans are coming, the Germans are coming. And I could preach a frightening sermon, make you wonder, boy, it looked like it's raining outside again. We walk out of here all nervous and upset and wondering how long we got. When's the economy going to collapse? When are boils going to break out on us? When is cannibalism going to happen? When is the great split coming? When's everybody going to leave the church? When is everything bad going to happen? When's it all blow up? When is it all destroyed? I could do that. I have the words, I got the vehicle, I could probably even find some scriptures to seem to support a terrible sermon here today. But you know, if you saw any parent in there, instead of nursing a child, poking at it, pinching it, dotting its eyes, whacking its little rear end, wringing its arm, you'd say, hey, that's not just loving parental correction, that's child abuse. If I were standing up here in the sermon, and kicking you in the shins and blacking your eyes spiritually and figuratively and saying, Oh, you people, you just make me sick. I've heard sermons like that. You bet I have. I've heard sermons where the minister right in the pulpit just chewed out that congregation in the worst way than I've ever seen any parent chew out a child that had stolen his own lunch money, for pity's sake. You don't talk to God's kids that way. These are God's kids. You don't abuse God's children. You don't beat up on God's sheep. You don't terrorize God's flock. We belong to Jesus Christ. I've got to throw myself at his feet the same way you do. I've got to ask him to pray to the Father to get me in there, same as you do. Why would I browbeat the possession of God? It tells me here that I'm here to edify, to uplift, to build the church of God till we all come to the measure of the fullness of Christ, the fullness of Christ, a man who prays, forgive them as they kill him. Are we to that point yet? No. we still got a way to go. But we are going to make it, aren't we? We are going to be there, aren't we? We will be in God's kingdom. I know I'm in Guntersville. You know you're in Guntersville. We couldn't even argue on that. Do you know that you're in God's kingdom? You're as good as there. Your citizenship, your politeia is in heaven from whence we expect a Savior. Do you know that? You absolutely have the assurance of it, that you're in God's kingdom. I'll tell you this. If you know that Nancy Reagan could get you tickets to the black tie event in Washington, then you know that Jesus Christ can get you into the kingdom of God. In James 2 and verse 23, and I won't turn to that, it says that Abraham was called God's friend. You know what Jesus Christ is? Jesus Christ is our coach on the team. Jesus Christ is our counselor. He is our guide. He is a captain aboard ship. He is the pilot of the airplane. He's the guy up front. He's the one in charge. 
I remember a little old lady timorously saying to the captain who came back, where do you think you're going, young man? She was real upset. Some women don't like to travel, and apparently she'd been traveling for the very first time. When she saw the captain coming back to go to the lavatory, the four stripes, she wondered, who's flying the airplane? So she said, well, just where do you think you're going, young man? And she was very upset. The captain's not up in front anymore. He needs to be up there. But it's like the little old lady that got in the airliner, and she said, is it safe? to the captain. The captain says, well, I'm the one sitting in the front seat. You know, if it's not safe, I'm, I'm the first one to die. I'm going to die just a split second before you do, and I'd really like to stay alive. So, yeah, I think we'll make it all right. You're in safe hands. You're in good hands, not just with Allstate, but with me as the captain of this airplane. And then there's the one about the little old lady that went to the restroom in the Boeing 707, and when the stewardess went back in afterwards, she found the little old lady had pinned up some, some paper over the little round window on the outside. <laughs> you heard that one? Let's turn to Romans, the 8th chapter, and verse 31. Romans 8 and verse 31. This is at the end of a very moving part of the Bible. As I've said, Romans 8 is like a little Bible within a Bible, and he talks about we are the firstborn, I mean that Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, and about our calling. And finally, in verse 31, he says, What shall we then say to these things? And that's what I ask the Church of God International, and what I wish all of our brethren could be asked, and what I wish all of them could learn in the Church of God worldwide, internationally, globally, around the world. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with Christ alive at his side, freely give us all things? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Just how evil and rotten and how guilty are we? Sure, we're inferior. Sure, we make mistakes. Sure, we get wrong notions and attitudes, and yes, we do sin now and then. John wrote and said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But when we sin, we go to him and he is at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. He's up there this instant. He can turn to the Father and say, listen to this person's prayer. Hear this person and what do you say? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? Who has a right to condemn God's people? Certainly not the minister. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can tribulation? A lot of brethren have had a lot of tribulation. Or distress? A lot of distress, a lot of tension to undergo when... Someone you have known and loved says, I'm going to put you out. I've had people come to me and tell me that they even did it apologetically. I, I don't want to do this. I, I wouldn't do it myself if it were left up to me. I don't think it's right. But my superiors have told me, I must put you out. So I'm sorry, but out you go. Amazing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, even if powerful angels deserted God's throne and tried to somehow take away your salvation, nor principalities, nor powers, the state government, the county government, church governments, no man, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no possible way anyone can take you out of the hands of your Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in my flesh I shall see God. In the latter day, I will stand on this earth. He said, I will wait until my change come. You realize that with this body, with this mind, with this personality, you, the way you are, your eyes that can look at me now temporarily, your eyes, those eyes, will see Christ and will look into the face of God, and perhaps in only a very, very few years. We need to say, during the Feast of Tabernacles, as a happy, joyous, ebullient, zestful, spirit-filled, rejoicing family of individuals who not only love one another, but love those who think they are our enemies, who love mankind, love those in other churches, love people in the world. We need to know that just as sure as we came here to Gunnersville, we are as good as in the kingdom of God. It's a fait accompli. It is a past act. It has been accomplished. You will be there. You will make it. If Jesus Christ of Nazareth prays for you, if he turns to God the Father and says, don't let any man take them out of my hand. You gave them to me. They're mine. And you're his purchased possession. You can have absolute faith to know. You will be there. You will be in the kingdom of God. I don't want to embarrass anybody. And I don't normally do this because I reserve that for the PTL club and television shows. But I want to ask all of you, those of you who know you are as good as in God's kingdom, you're going to be there. You're going to be at the feet of Jesus Christ when he comes. And you know it's a fait accompli. You raise your hand with me. Are you going to be in God's kingdom? Are you knowing it? Will you be there? Do you think there's a remote chance you're going to fail? I don't think there's a chance you can because Christ will never let you down.